Okay. Well, here goes nothing. <laughs> it is uh, Wednesday, October 12th, 2016. I hope you are doing okay. I am doing okay. This is the Promotional Law Practice live chat here on MMAfighting.com. I'm your host of this podcast, Luke Thomas. Uh, we go for about 90 minutes, as you know. Where this video is embedded on MMA fighting is where there's a bunch of questions already. The ones that turn green get priority, but not exclusivity. I am praying and hoping to God that they're not audio issues. There might be. I don't know. But I'm hoping not. If you find any, if you hear any, uh, let me know. You can get at me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. Or I guess you can leave a comment in the thread, but I might not get to it right away. So just let me know. Let me know if this is working, please. Inshallah. Uh, I, I have been toying with this for a while and I think I got it figured out, but we'll see. All right. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, I have one call with the t-shirt guy tonight. That should be the last one for a while. Um, I'll get you some information about that once it's finalized, but we are rounding the corner into, uh, something to sell. Um, so we'll see about that. Um, any other housekeeping news and notes? I don't think so. I think that's it. So with that out of the way, let us get to questions, provided that you're not hearing an echo. Because if you are hearing an echo, well, there's some train tracks over there, and I might just have to go lay on them. And knowing my luck, I wouldn't even die. I would just be mangled. All right. Um, okay. So, first question. I'm just making sure there are no issues. Sounds perfect. Audio, good. Audio is great. Okay, then let's get this train rolling. Shall we? And then here's what my boss says. He says, sounds good. Okay, all right, let's do this. First question, Belfour, meaning Vitor Belfour, looks small relative to the top of the heap uh, at middleweight. He has a hard time making the weight now and is 39. What do you do with him? I say he moves up to 205, a weight he can definitely make and take fun fights uh, there like Shogun. That's not the worst idea in the world, I don't think. I mean, the problem for me is that to me is more satisfying than some other middleweight alternatives. Um, you know, Vitor Belfort, I don't think he costs uh, a tremendous amount, but he's not necessarily cheap to use. And there are ways that you can use him that make more sense than others, where if he's competing in... Um, certain markets that he can draw in, obviously Brazil being the chief among those, um, right? So there are ways in which you can use him that really still maximize whatever promotional value he has left and whatever talent he has left. And I think what you saw against Musasi is that I thought against the wide in the Weidman fight that he only had like three minutes left in him. Turns out he's got like a good round and some change in him against elite guys, which is not a lot, but it's still something. So for me, the question is, if you're going to use this guy who still has some promotional muscle um, geographically, might be a little bit more expensive than your average person, if not maybe significantly more expensive. Um, it doesn't really make sense to put him against some middle-of-the-pack uh, middleweight. It doesn't make sense to use him against guys who don't have a ton of name value, um, who you're not either trying to prop up as a rising prospect or as another aging veteran. Those, to me seem to be the only two ways you could really go because he it's, it's it's just clear at this point he can't compete with the top of the division, okay? So where does that leave us? Given those other promotional considerations, it leaves us in a space where either we're going to use his promotional muscle to um, pass the torch to another 
entity worthy of gra uh, grabbing it. Sorry, I'm still getting some emails here from my producer. Um, or we are going to put him against someone at a basically commensurate level of either age, mileage, or experience where it's still a competitive fight. So in other words, you could make a competitive fight with someone at the middle of the pack, but what are you really doing if this is a no-name guy who's not going anywhere? That doesn't that doesn't necessarily make a ton of sense. So at 205 versus Shogun, uh, that to me seems like a potentially reasonable thing. I think there's still some considerations to make about what he would look like at that weight, but okay, let's assume it's that your uh, assessment of the situation is correct. I think that would be fine. Um, or if there's someone else at middleweight, we really got our eye on. But the problem with middleweight is it's like all top heavy, and then there's just dramatic drop off. So you might, in fact, be right because I think if he wants to stay at middleweight, there's just very limited options for him. Perhaps a senior tour at light heavyweight might be a better option. But at 39, he is, he is, you know, he doesn't feel 39 to me. He feels like 49. Um, but you know, whatever the case may be. All right, let's keep going here. Someone says Bellator might work well for him. I mean, they're not going to let him go to Bellator. I mean, they might let him go to Bellator. I don't know. Um, someone says Bellator versus Shlomenko would be good. That'd be kind of interesting. You know, he'd be great to go over to Japan right about now. Ryzen would make a ton of great use out of him, but it is what it is. All right, here are some donks trolling. Someone says, I hope you ban this goof on air. That's exactly what I'm going to do because they're trolling. I mean, I don't mind good jokes, and y'all have some good jokes, but different uh okay let's see here let me get back making sure the issues are still good i'm so sensitive about this sounds great all right still good we're still rocking and rolling next question Look, after reviewing the list of names that Dan Henderson has fought, can you say with certainty that he has the most legendary resume a fighter could possibly have? Here's who he has fought. I have to verify this list, but according to this reader, Fedor, Big Nog times two, Little Nog, Shogun times two, uh, Anderson, Machida, Cormier, Rashad, Rampage, Vitor times three, Vanderlei times two, Musasi, Bisping times two, Franklin, Shields, Fejao, Lombard, Pajares, Babalu times two, Ival. Um, Gilbert Ivel, uh, Carlos Newton, and Henzo Gracie. Okay, well, he lost to some of those guys, right? I mean, to me, the issue is where did he win? He won at middleweight, he won at light heavyweight, and sort of this catchweight area-ish of um, above that as well. Um, let me pull up his resume just to have a good look at it while we do this, rather than trying to recall from memory. But this is going to be the interesting part about how you would... Dan Henderson, as he exits the game is also exiting with like the last way that a fighter will be evaluated in the same way he will be evaluated, which is to say there's going to be no one who is jumping a lot of weight classes the way that they did when it was you know less of an issue or collecting these belts from organizations that had tremendous value. I mean, look, these other organizations like Cage Warriors or if you're a Bellator champion, that, let's say lightweight or featherweight or something, that's, that's significant, but <coughs> they are substantively less than the UFC by every measurement. And doesn't mean you're not really, really good, just means that those belts don't necessarily signify something. Pride at its era, I mean, you can quibble with the way in which he got some of those belts, including the Strike Force one, but nevertheless, um, he did. And that is an incredible thing to do. Like, even if you want to quibble with how he got maybe one belt or two belts, the 
collective action in getting all of the ones that he managed to collect is 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 uh, really impressive. So yeah, he had a heavyweight bout against Fedor. Of course, it was uh, not quite like you know um, full full heavyweight, but light heavyweight. When he fought Big Nog back in the rings days, yeah, Hanato Sabral, he beat Babalu. Uh, Minotauro, split decision. Gilbert Ivel, uh, Hiramitsu Kanahara, Carlos Newton, Alan, Alan Goez, too. You're not even listing that on the resume. Who else did you leave off? Akira uh, Shoji, he was a good fighter. Um, you left all, and he beat Marillo Bustamante. That's one of my favorite fights, man. Are you kidding me? Dude, Marilla Bustamante used to be like the man back in the day. Kazuhiro Nakamura, Rio Chonin. He beat Marilla Bustamante twice. Uh, let's see. Uh, who else did he beat? And you got the other ones. Lost to Rashad. Yeah. In terms of who he's faced, it's like a who's who across three divisions. And he has wins across three divisions. The issue for measuring the greatness of Dan Henderson's resume to me feels like while there are notable losses on there, including the last streak he had, which didn't really go so well for him, the last fight's controversial decision notwithstanding, it's that it's not that the losses um, don't count. They do. It's that the nature of the wins he collected is so amazing that we still have to acknowledge that he tripped up um, essentially at every step of the way but that he took on these grandiose challenges. And for all the losses he had, he had at least, you know, significantly more wins. So I don't think that it cancels the losses out. I think what it tells you is that it's a different kind of resume than the 16-fight unbeaten streak that Anderson Silva was able to maintain. It's just a different thing. It was one belt, one weight class, and just continuous domination. And maybe that's a little bit better, but that's that's a different kind of achievement than saying I'm going to really just sort of jump around where I can um, and while collecting defeats, I'm going to collect these other really incredible achievements and the two will have to be balanced together. Um, but um, that kind of, that kind of resume, I think you're going to see dying out. I think the, the resumes as we go forward, in mixed martial arts are going to be much more based on what kind of sustained dominance over time did you have in a weight class. Dan Henderson really wasn't about that life. He was about, mm, that's an interesting challenge. Let me see if I can go up and handle it. And maybe he couldn't. But um, but man, that just the ability to just collect all of these scalps. And maybe he had to pay some taxes for him along the way. But that is an incredible trophy case he has, right? Um, there's not a lot of trophy cases like the one Dan Henderson can can put up in his living room. Did big country, Roy Nelson, want to be cut? I mean, hitting a ref, knowing what has happened in the past, also his comments before suggest that he wanted out of his UFC contract. I doubt he expected commissions to get involved, though. Is this why the UFC is dragging its feet in dealing with him, knowing that a quick release is probably what he wants? Even if the commission in Brazil suspends him and the U.S. and the USA commissions follow suit, he can still fight in Japan. He could fight in Japan, but then he couldn't come back and fight in the U.S. Like, you can go over there, and there's not a whole lot. I don't think that an American commission can do to stop you. But then if you tried to come back and fight here, it won't work. So if he was actually trying to sign with Bellator, presumably, you don't list that here necessarily, but let's say that's what it was. And, of course, Bellator could make good use of him. Uh, he'd be worthless to them unless it was an overseas thing. And even then, it would still be worthless to him because... 
um, or they they couldn't use him because if they staged an event even overseas where there wasn't any kind of regulatory body in the United States that had some say, that commission that that entity's license in the commit in the uh, in the states uh, would still be subject to penalty or review or revocation. So it doesn't. I mean, I guess Ryzen could do it, and I guess Bellator's loose association with Ryzen wouldn't work. But do you really want to hang your hat on? I'll wait until the next Ryzen show to get on. It. I don't. I don't. That doesn't seem to me like a very care. I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong. Who knows? But if that's his plan, it's not a very careful, thought out plan. That would be a very poor attempt at uh, obtaining some kind of, you know. Departure. Even if the UFC released him, it wouldn't matter. Um, so there you go. All right. Hey, Luke, I was watching your Monday morning analyst podcast, and I found that even though you gave all the right reasons behind why, you didn't call the second round of Bisping Henderson fight a 10 10. I would like to know why analysts in general, this is not a personal attack, are so reluctant to call around a 10 10 when either fighter did not do enough to seal a round. It's an interesting question. It's one I've thought a lot about. And the only answer I can give is, remember, the first things you evaluate are effective striking and effective grappling. From there, you go to the other factors involved, like cage control, if if those two are even remotely equal. Let's say for a second, and maybe you have a different interpretation of this. This is, I really believe that this fight needs to be examined by regulatory bodies going forward because there's a couple of things very interesting about the second Dan Henderson Michael Bisping fight. Namely, if you look at the rules by which a 10 8 round is scored, it is damage. It is, uh, well, you know, they don't use the word damage, but let's, let's be real about the initial draft that they proposed damage, domination. And then a third characteristic, duration. By that criteria, it is hard for me to give a 10-8 to Michael Bisping, or excuse me, to Dan Henderson in that first round. A clear 10-9. Why? A significant punch was landed that took him off of his feet, potentially disrupted a normal level of consciousness, precipice of defeat. Now, not the hanging precipice, but mm, pushed him to the edge of the cliff a little bit. However, there was no real duration of dominance. In fact, if you look at the Monday Morning Analyst and you go back and you watch, he gets, Bisping does, cracked at the 39-second mark. He gets up to his feet before this, but at the 15-second mark, fires his first punch in return. So let's say, worst-case scenario, that was a total of 24 seconds. The rest of that time, remember, after the after the first the 15-second mark, Bisping comes over, does a jumping switch kick. It doesn't land, but let's say after the 15-second mark, it's at best neutral for Dan Henderson. Now, he clearly wins that round for the reasons I just stated, but that means up until that 39-second mark, so four minutes plus, Michael Bisping was handily winning that round. Okay? 24 seconds to me is not enough. And I don't know what the cutoff would be. I mean, it feels to me like two minutes would be uh, uh, would pass the smell test, but they don't have a cutoff in mind. So maybe 24 seconds is enough for you. It's not enough for me, given the, how the rest of the round went, where it was clearly in Michael Bisping's favor. Um, but there's something to be said for the fact that if you rock your opponent and you take him to the edge of defeat, and even if on the ground he defends himself pretty well, 
But Dan Henderson got two side control positions as a consequence. He did land, I counted at least three super hard elbows on the ground. I just feel like, categorically, that's a different round than someone getting jabbed for five minutes. I just do. That cumulative damage that someone might take in five minutes could be a lot. Like, you know, uh, Justin Ledet's jab. I mean, when that, when that guy hits you with his jab, you know, he's breaking things along the way. Okay, that, that's different. But guys who just kind of touch you up a little bit and get going, it's not in the rules. You can't score to 10-8. I just don't feel like. But I also feel like if that's the way in which you're going to define a 10-8, guys who get super rocked and maybe they kind of recover on the ground, takes them a few seconds while they eat some shots on the ground, that's the same as you know, barely out striking a guy, I, you know, and one guy's not doing a lot, one guy's doing just a little bit more. I thought that doesn't feel quite right. So that's one problem there. The second part is now to your question. I think it's a great question for 1010. For me personally, the only reason I couldn't was because even if you thought the striking was a wash in the first round when Henderson rocks him, Michael Bisping actually falls a few feet away. So Henderson actually has to cover ground and run before landing the big shot. In the second round, when he cracks him, Michael Bisping just kind of falls where he stands. And, and as a consequence, Henderson dives right into the guard. That wasn't, I mean, he took him off of his feet with the punch, but it's not a takedown, and he didn't do anything on the ground, including not even advance position or even attempt a guard pass. So that's not effective grappling to me. So if there's not really effective grappling, we have to look at the effective striking. Again, in MMA, you and I can have a different idea about it, but in MMA, full guard is 50-50. Okay. Allegedly. I think that needs also to be revised, but for now it's 50 50. So then you have to ask the question is that one big shot and the pitter patter ones on the ground, which were almost none? Michael Bisping did a really good job in the second round of avoiding damage on the ground. Did that really counteract the shots that Michael Bisping was landing? Okay. Let's say that it does. Nevertheless, that would then take us to the next criteria of who had something like octagon control. Michael Bisping had octagon control. Here's the other part about that. Dan Henderson was kind of letting him have octagon control because it's clear Dan Henderson wanted to land that right hand. So this is a really difficult question. I just don't feel like we have it fully fleshed out. Obviously, we're making incremental progress as each of these rule sets are updated, and I'm thankful for that, and I'm sure you are as well. But I just feel like this fight, you know, I spoke that day to Dan Hardy and to Michael Johnson. Um, and both of them were like, I thought Dan Henderson won. And, you know, you ask them, and they're not judging by the criteria. And so I think a lot of people say, well, let's just dismiss it. But why is it? For, forget that they didn't apply the rules of the scoring criteria as we understand them. And you can use that literalism against them if you want. But let's, for a moment, just ask, why would they feel like Henderson won rounds one and two and five? I think they would say that because as guys who go in there and sling it out, and Dan Hardy in particular articulated this, like the, uh, you know, look at Bisping's eye after round one. That accumulated damage, uh, it, it can affect how you fight and affect how you can tolerate things and affect what you can do. Now, you would have to ask what noticeable evidence there is for that, and maybe you don't agree with that analysis, but I don't think it's coincidental. And of course, not every fighter agrees that Henderson won. I'm sure there's a split opinion among them as well, but I just mean to say if you ask professional fighters to judge it based on their general feeling of who won, I do think you're going to get a little bit more sympathy for Dan Henderson. I think it's because this fight in particular 
it just lays bare the inadequacies of the 10-9 must system. Maybe a 10-10 is justified. For me, it's not only because as I jump to the next criteria, Michael Bisping uh, satisfies more of them. But I just don't know that that criteria really satisfies um, the question of whether we are properly evaluating who is winning and losing these things. And I think that's my problem. And round five, it's a little bit, you know, I don't, I don't know that that's as hard to adjudicate. Neither is round three or round four. But we still we still don't have a lot of great answers for one, 10, eight. And we definitely don't have a lot of good answers for what does a knockdown mean? And of course, all knockdowns don't mean the same thing. But I still feel like we are in very developmental embryonic stages about understanding the value of a knockdown and how we score it and what kind of um, value we ascribe to it. Because my initial impression when I was watching live, and as I mentioned, I will say it now, I will say it forever. I was live blogging UFC 204's main card. When you live blog, for me, uh, it's like texting and driving. You know, eventually you're just going to get into an accident and you're going to miss things. Um, so when I rescored it without doing that, I had a very different scorecard. But also, that first shot, he gets dropped. I thought he was taking more abuse on the ground than he was. And then he gets up and he has this giant egg, you know, mouse under his eye that looked horrible and was bleeding. That had an impact psychologically, even though maybe it shouldn't. And so there's something to be said for, you know, to what extent can real time, you know, I, I really believe there's just no way to do it. But I wonder if there was a way for instant replay to aid in the judgment of scoring. I mean, when you think about how precise rules are, and they have problems in their own game about NFL scoring. So did you guys see Odell Beckham Jr.'s touchdown in like like the third minute against or the the third minute of the, the last three minutes of the fourth quarter against the Packers? He had one foot down and then one foot literally like on the edge. And they had to review it and review it and review it and review it. And eventually the, the touchdown was upheld. It was a sick catch by Odell Beckham Jr. Um, but the point being was like these guys who are expert pro referees, umpires, it took them video evidence that they had to review for several minutes to be able to make a call on something like that. Now, they're asking for a specific granular question, not a broader one about who's winning, who's losing. But um, nevertheless, I, I still feel like if we're going to eliminate the assistant, and then we, some obviously commissions will have the, the video cameras but or the video monitors, but I guess the long story short is I don't feel like we've approached enough the idea of to what extent can technology aid in judging. Um, I would I would I would like to see what that could do. And I really feel like these glacial, you know, improvements, um, the speed, the speed of them anyway, in judging is just doing everyone a disservice. All right, good question. Ask transgressions aside. All right, so let's put away all the negative stuff about him for just a moment. Greg Hardy is an athletic specimen, a heavyweight, twenty-eight years old, and with a proper rate of progression, do you think he can succeed in MMA? Also. Isn't this what MMA fans for a while wondered? Question, why aren't these big-time athletes coming to MMA? Well, money, obviously, but did McGregor's rise in popularity make a paradigm shift in MMA's allure to athletes? So let's start backwards. There is no paradigm shift. A paradigm shift would imply that we would have hordes 
of heavyweight fighters or light heavyweight fighters streaming into the UFC like orcs overrunning a plantation trying to retake a castle or something. Not plantation, but sort of fields, you know. Sorry, I'm not a Lord of the Rings uh, connoisseur. I like the movies and, of course, the books I read when I was younger, but you get the idea. Um, real quickly. Okay. Um, but there is no paradigm shift. Certainly, I do believe that having such this such a celebrated celebrated grandiose figure like Conor McGregor is is going to make it interesting for a lot of different athletes to potentially you know t take a second look but look let's just be absolutely clear about Greg Hardy's situation I'm not going to speak necessarily about the case that he had or the case Jesus Christ all the baggage that he has which by the way is not even limited to the domestic violence stuff you know don't forget that he was shoving coaches on the sidelines in his last season with the Cowboys the guy's an absolute menace or at least he was. We'll see what it turns out to be. I have my doubts that any of that has changed. But okay, here's the point about that. Number one, he's not getting into it at 22 years old or 21 years old. That's the first part. Number two, uh, so he's lost seven years of potential developmental time. Um, now, he is as athletic as you say. and It's a thin division, no doubt about it. The other problem to me is that he is an absolute malcontent. I wonder to what extent he's really going to be able to take having someone put it on him in training. Because if someone doesn't put it on him in training, eventually someone's going to put it on him in a fight. And it's going to be real, real bad for him. I think that's an open question as well. And and let's just be absolutely clear about what the circumstances are here. This is a desperation move by him. Now, he might be making it quick enough at age 28 for it not to feel so desperate ultimately, depending on what happens. Right? He's not making a, He's not making this move at 33 or 35 at 28 he potentially to your point has some time to be very good again depending on how things go but this guy in the nfl is radioactive whoa he is toxic they do not want him around part of that though and this is the conversation that needs to be had and i feel like this is the same one about ray rice i feel like people are like oh well you know will the nfl teams grant second chances of course they will of course they will. A couple of factors are involved. Some measure of law enforcement penalty has to be uh, le leveled. Um, another one is that some degree of contrition has to be present. And Ray Rice, I think he avoided the former, but he has been, whatever else you want to say about Ray Rice, um, the former Baltimore Ravens running back, fairly contrite relative to his peers who've done similar things anyway. I mean, I think a lot of people have vouched for Ray Rice and the things he has done wrong. Um, whether or not you want to accept that or not, it's certainly very different from what Greg Hardy has done. But the problem with this whole argument about like Greg Hardy and Ray Rice is like, here's the truth about Ray Rice. I think any NFL team would want to sign him. There were, there were rumblings that here the Skins might sign him because they only have really Matt Jones in the backfield to do the to heavy carrying. But the point is this. In his last season before he was slapping his fiance or punching her, whatever it was, I mean, it was bad. And that defunct casino in uh, Atlantic City, he, was, he had like, what, 3.1 yards per carry? I mean, that's the truth. Michael Vick was a abuser of animals at an industrial scale. But he went to jail. He put forth some kind of effort of contrition, and he could still play. I think those – Michael Vick is like a perfect test case. And even then, people still protest Michael Vick. 
people still have innumerable issues with him. He's still the butt of many jokes, but he's still got a number of second chances in the NFL. Greg Hardy's not getting it in part because he's a malcontent and and he's to- he's toxic and he's absolutely you know from a baggage standpoint for what the team would have to answer for it would be an enormous load but he also didn't have a great season in his last season now he was all pro in in 2013 so you can ask you know why didn't he have a good season I'm not saying he per- he never could return but the long story short is if you can play if you can play at a super high level if Ray Rice had six yards a carry in his last season, he'd still be in the NFL. He would have been re-signed anyway. Teams are not going to pass up on a, on a running back who is good for five yards a carry every carry. They're just never going to do that. That's not how those ownership structure. That's not, that's not how those that that, that the the owners think, and that's not how you know. However barbarian and awful you might find that to be, you know, uh, that's that's the way those worlds work at least for now. And so, to me, it's like, what if Greg Hardy is good? They'll sign him in an instant. Somebody's going to sign him in an instant. It's just going to happen. Now, he might self-destruct on the way there or at some point afterwards, or maybe this whole thing never takes off. I don't know. But people want to make this debate to be about, well, like, what's going to happen if he's really good? Is an organization going to sign him? Yes, of course they are. That's That's how people in those kinds of positions to make those kinds of decisions, always make that kind of decision. And even if one of their peers don't, one of their peers will. He will end up, if he shows any promise, and I mean any promise, he will show up on national TV. Mark my words. Mark my words. How long he can maintain that, I don't know. But we're talking about an an industry where there are numerous guys currently competing at the highest level and even mid-tier levels with an enormous amount of the same kinds of baggage that he has, in some cases worse, although maybe not as high profile, um, and they don't have necessarily a tenth of the athletic ability that he has. They might have more skills, you know, relative to the rest of their game, but yeah, man, like this this whole thing about like, is someone going to sign him? I don't want anyone to sign him. I mean, are you serious? You know, we were treated to the War Machine Redemption Tour. You don't think you're going to get one with Greg Hardy if he's even a little bit good? With this false perception of MMA and why not boxing? Longtime MMA fan, this is not something I have wondered. I find celebrity interest in participating in MMA totally unrealistic and am genuinely baffled as to how a celebrity, even an athlete at a pro level, could watch MMA and think it's something they can become even moderately good at within a few years. Get into martial arts by all means, but competing at a pro level, does it really look that easy to them? Honestly, not sure of the thought process here. Just seems really naive. And why not get into boxing? Focus intensely on one aspect of the game, at least to start out. Well, there's a reason, and I mentioned this on my radio show yesterday, there's a reason Greg Hardy is getting into mixed martial arts. And it would work very similar to boxing, to be honest, but certainly in mixed martial arts. Um, number one, you know, I think this is a guy who, uh, the guys who are good in boxing are incredible athletes. Like, I am not challenging that, nor would I ever begin to, but I think um, one, and I mentioned this before, and a lot of people overseas took issue with it because maybe it's not the case in their country, but I can I tell you here, you don't, you guys don't feel like there's a certain ascendancy MMA has enjoyed recently, particularly the UFC. I don't hardly ever 
see Sports Center talking about boxing anymore, and I see MMA on there all the time, all the time. This is anecdotal evidence, but I just feel. And you look at the biggest pay per views that are happening month in month out. It's 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 MMA at least in North America, right? Well, it's where pay per views are, of course. But I'm not declaring MMA is bigger than boxing in some grand scope of things, but. It is certainly a hotter property in the United States. I think that's a part of it. I think the other part is that an athlete like like Greg Hardy, a defensive end, is sort of used to using the full extent of his body, level changing. Maybe these guys might start in a three-point stance. And so that kind of thing, might he might feel like that comes a little bit more natural to him. Who knows to what extent he was recruited to some extent. There's that. But look, I mean, why would you go into mixed martial arts if you're Greg Hardy? So you're, you had a bad season last season, or at least not a very good one, and you're super radioactive. And what are you going to do? There are no, or at least relatively speaking, there are very few barriers to entry to getting into mixed martial arts. You don't have to be that good. They can find some fat slob, and pardon my language, to put up against him at a local show. If you don't think that would happen, that would happen in an instant. Please go to your local MMA show. You will see legitimate prospects. You will also see Donk Donkerson versus Rick Rickerson, and it will be a pathetic display of nothingness. That is just how the local game goes. They can easily find someone for Greg Hardy to either look good against or just to get some rounds against or something, and he can just do some kind of you know, level-changing spear, blast, double, get on top, and just be horrible and maybe stop a guy because he's bigger and stronger. That is an, a, an entirely conceivable thing. So there's part of it is that. But look, people got all bitter at me on Twitter yesterday because I made it a comparison about CM Punk, and I, I will take ownership over the fact that it was inarticulately worded. It's not about comparing their moral character. CM Punk is a good guy who got an opportunity because people like him and he wanted to do something. Greg Hardy is is the worst of the worst. I'm not, I'm not comparing that. What I am saying, though, is... They are both symptoms of the same kind of push and um, um, uh, what do you want to call it? The same kind of signal to promoters. From time immemorial, we have told promoters, you, me, the fan base, the media, everyone, that there is a degree to which we would like to see excellency in craft in combat sports or in more particular MMA. There is also uh, room carved out for the curiosity, whether it is for watching someone who is a good guy like CM Punk, see what he can do with his life, right, in the next chapter of his career, or celebrity, even in the form of villainy. There are going to be lots of people who just want to see what happens to Greg Hardy. There's going to be a lot of people who want to see Greg Hardy get viciously knocked out, right? And you might count yourself among them. But the idea that people are indifferent to it, I find that to be absolutely laughable. He knows he can get into mixed martial arts because the barriers to entry to do so are very low. And his celebrity, even in the form of villainy, is a major, 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 major boon for his career. Of course, it is also true that he is 28 years old, as you mentioned. Of course, it is also true that he would be getting into a division where athletically he would be far ahead of most of his peers. No doubt about it. Those are also contributing factors. But the kind of benefits he can reap from his celebrity, his controversial celebrity, that repulses a huge swath of the sports-watching American public is nevertheless incredibly valuable to promoters. They don't care if you like Greg Hardy. They might try to make you like Greg Hardy just as a way of making it somewhat palatable. They care that you want to pay money either with your attention dollars or your actual dollars in watching him get viciously KO'd. And they know that, and they know that, and he probably knows that too. That is something he just can't really do 
in, let's say, skateboarding. No one wants to see him go on a half pipe, man. He can't do that in golfing because he would just be absolutely miserable at it to an extent where it just wouldn't be palatable. He's not trying out for the Olympic swim team because really much more so, it's not that we wouldn't watch Greg Hardy if he tried to get in golfing necessarily, but it really wouldn't have the same kind of effect. And especially in other sports like swimming where his celebrity would do him absolutely no good. No good. He can be awful as a, both a person and a fighter, and there's a market for that. You have shown it. I have shown it. We have all done it. We're all guilty of it. There's a market for that. And it is incredibly enhanced by celebrity, even in the form of someone who is a repugnant moral character. It's also true that it benefits guys like Herschel Walker, like Carlton Hasselrig, although he got less of it. Black CM Punk. We love the good guy stories, but the problem is it's those are all symptoms of the same central cause, same central condition. Um, sometimes you get the good stories, and those are the ones we like. And if you want to be against Greg Hardy, even if you had say liked Herschel Walker, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's just hard for me to stomach the idea that even if you or I might be repulsed by Greg Hardy, that there won't be enough people who aren't, or that there won't be enough people who aren't even just to watch him get viciously KO'd. There just are, man. That's ju There's just way too much evidence to suggest, to suggest that's true. In my opinion, the state of the MMA will be very different in a year with the rise of real-er contract negotiations and relative competitions for free agents. Are you hopeful or pessimistic about the future of pay contracting in MMA? How long before fighters band together and join an association or union? The only way I can answer that question for the time being is... Um, I want to see where the Professional Fighters Association is in terms of collecting that 30% threshold they need of signed cards um, to, as the first step towards becoming, um, first of, of many, but the first step towards becoming um, uh, the official union. I need to see where they're at on that. Because if they are relative, well, relatively close to that, that could dramatically alter the conversation. If they're not anywhere close, you know, I don't know. I don't know how much hope I have for the Muhammad Ali Act. Um, I don't mean to get political, but let's say Paul Ryan still stays as Speaker of the House and the Republican majorities are staying both the Senate and the House and then Hillary Clinton presumably is in office as president. To what extent would the Republican Congress even push this through? To what extent would there be um, congressional gridlock? Uh, it's just really very, very hard to say. Uh, okay, true-false. Bisping's lackluster performance against an old... Y'all are hurtful. This means lackluster performance against an old 46-year-old Hendo indicates that any top contender would demolish him. Didn't he just fight Luke Rockhold? <laughs> There's an argument that, like, if you if you struggle against 14, then to the extent you struggled against 14, the number ranked guy, you must struggle that much more against the guy who's ranked fourth. I don't think that's necessarily an unfair um, presumption. But as we've seen in the case with Michael Bisping, he just won the title against the guy who beat the other guy. So it's it's it might be the case that that's true, but it's not. It's it's almost this. This is another version of MMA math. Oh, if B is ranked higher than C, um, and if A struggles against C, A would struggle even more against B. It's clearly not true. 
The fact that the NSAC fined McGregor 150000 as punishment shows what a greedy, corrupt entity they are. Yeah, of course that's true. And I, there was a lot of people who were really like behind this punishment, which I find very surprising. Number one, do you really think this is going, even if it was $300,000, do you really think this is going, this is, this is such, the idea that this body can really do anything with their fines to fundamentally alter fighter behavior for fighters at this level is total nonsense. Total nonsense. Because here's the situation. Even $300,000 wouldn't deter him. That, and first of all, that would make them look incredibly abusive. So they would look abusive, and it wouldn't really do anything. Vontez Perfect has given up nearly a million dollars for vicious hits. You think this season he's not going to go headhunting? Let's just be real. If these guys can afford to pay it off, they just will. That's the first part. The second part is, do you think they're fining him $300,000 because, well, we want to be making sure that we're getting a percentage of his purse, and that's what a fair percentage of his purse would be. If he was making $30,000, we would only get three, please. It's a phony show of force is all that is. It's a totally phony show of force. They're just trying to get some nebulous sense of what's a big number that we can parade around as to show how authoritative we are. That's what that's about. And here's essentially the larger point uh, about this. One, it's just a phony show of force. Two, they don't really have any kind of impact. If they really wanted to have an impact, the way you do that is you deny someone's license for a period of time. You're suspended for a year, and every other commission will recognize that. But they don't ever do that, and they did nothing to Floyd Mayweather and innumerable other fighters who have had incredibly sketchy moments or careers. Because at the end of the day, that's not what this is about. This is just about a show of force to make sure they still look important. It doesn't matter if it has any real deterrent effect, which, by the way, it won't. This will happen again. This is this is them knowing that they're essentially, in this regard, they have to look like they're important, and they don't really have any ability to do it otherwise, other than the one mechanism by which they would, and they don't ever seem to exercise. A body that didn't care how much money was coming into the state would not hesitate to do that. A body that is reliant upon the same entity that they are fining would be very hesitant to do that. Did you guys not see Pat Lundvall getting absolutely skewered like chicken kebab on the ESPN's outside, outside the Lines piece on why they never, ever reprimanded Floyd Mayweather in any kind of real way? They're high-fiving Floyd. You know, and they've got their own, you know, I've seen baseball players when they come back, they go dunk, 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 dunk. And they they have their not I'm not I'm talking about the third base coach giving like code. I mean, like two guys having their own basketball, they do it too, right? Where they have their own handshake code and and blah blah blah. Psh, you know what I mean? They got the when Floyd walks in, I mean they all they see is an ATM machine coming in. If they really wanted to reprimand Floyd, they had every opportunity. And in every opportunity, they said, Hey Floyd, what can we do for you? So you guys can, you know, I know I know some people are like, well, you got to do something. He threw a bottle. Okay, I understand that. But this is not the body that's ever going to do that. That's a job, frankly, for law enforcement. And law enforcement, to my knowledge, didn't do anything. And if they had, my understanding is a similar kind of infraction would have been a $1,000 fine. People act like there's this scourge of kids going around throwing water bottles at people's heads. Like it's, you know. It's the new knockout game. Just look out. Kids across America throwing water bottles, causing brain damage. What a scourge on humanity. However, will we stop this problem? It's not really, uh, it's, it's not so insignificant. You can just do nothing. But 
this is a job for law enforcement. And if law enforcement passes on it, the commission should impose a very, very relative minimum, minimal fine and just move on and stop pretending that they're the kind of body that can really get out there and make a difference in terms of the deterrent effect that it will have on future fighter action. It won't. This will happen again. If not this year, then next. It, it, this got nut People have a very short memory about this. And guys who are in positions to piss away $300,000 will do exactly that. They will piss away $300,000. The one tool that the commission has to really affect behavior and really hurt guys where it matters and to really have a deterrent effect, they never exercise. Vitor Belfort has the worst ground game for someone who was supposed to have been a Gracie Jiu-Jitsu black belt for 20 years. I don't know what's happened to his ground game. I, I, you know, I don't want to say true, but it's not been well utilized. If Ferguson and Habib win their next fights, they'll fight each other in a title eliminator match. False. One of them's going to get a title shot. Maybe it's Ferguson, maybe it's Habib, but one of them's going to get it. An unusually high number of MMA fighters have died this year. Depends what you mean by unusual. You mean like higher than normal? Yes. You mean like higher than normal because of nefarious circumstances? No. If Eddie Alvarez beats Conor McGregor by a controversial split decision, the UFC would set up an immediate rematch between the two. That is a good question. Mm. Man, it really depends how... Con you mean like Bisping Hendo too controversial? No. You mean like Michael Bisping versus Matt Hamill? Maybe. Gagard Musasi will fight for the title in 2017. False. Dan Henderson will go down as one of the toughest fighters in MMA history. I mean, first ballot Hall of Famer on that criteria alone. It's sickening knowing that children are fighting each other in MMA fights in Russia. It's true, although it's not exactly all together clear to me how that's any less violent than little toddlers. And you can see it right down the street where I live. If you live in America, if you're not American, this won't apply to you necessarily so much. But I grew up in South Georgia for a portion of my life, and I can tell you how many kids I knew that age who were banging skulls in um, peewee leagues in playing football. That's no less sickening, frankly. Uh, if the rumor about Connor being knocked out in practice is true, then is he in danger of being concussed by Eddie Alvarez? Well, it appears to be not true. Let us say for the moment that it is true. Yes, that would put him at risk, potentially. Um, heightened risk, anyway. But my understanding is it's not true. And also, by the way, and, you know, there, um, go back and find the episode of the Joe Rogan podcast where Duke Rufus was on. Because we, you know, it's very, Muay Thai is interesting in America. Go to your local Muay Thai gym. What are you likely to see? You're likely to see the same thing basically everywhere. It will vary gym to gym. It will vary class to class. However, what I have noticed in my experience is that Muay Thai classes generally are for certainly a more serious student than cardio kickboxing. That might be a bit of an older ladies class. But nevertheless, it will be both men and women. It'll be a variety of ages. Skew younger, but, you know, there'll be, there'll be a range. Um, a, a variety of different body types. Some people who never, ever compete, who are really looking to lose weight and learn a trade. And it has this reverence where everyone will line up at the end and everyone shakes hands and they all do this and then they touch, they all do this and then they touch. It carries over, in other words, many of the more palatable, favorable, 
transportable martial arts ex uh, um, components that it has in Thailand. What it doesn't have here is you don't see kids fighting, which is quite common in Thailand. In fact, it's not only common in Thailand, it's a way of life for many of those kids so they can feed their families. Um, despite the fact that some of these guys have, if you look at, they've mentioned some of the, the they've done um, either blood tests or scans for a lot of these kids and they'll have a significant amount of iron depositing around their brain because of the bleeding that happens around it from early age because their brains are still developing and the rest of the skulls have not, their skulls have not fully developed in terms of the protection they can provide when they're in adults. And there isn't the same kind of moral outrage there. Now, certainly it is a different, difficult ethical question about what do you do for starving people who use this as a lifeline for food. I cannot tell you enough about the, the, the Thai way of life or the economy in Thailand to say that there is a easy solution to getting rid of it. There might in fact be, I'm just ignorant of it if there is. However, I do know that this is a way of life and we don't necessarily share the same kind of moral outrage. It is not, what happened in Russia was a, a weird dictator uh, or having in Chechnya, whatever, is a weird dictator showing off for fun. And so in that sense, it's it doesn't carry the same kind of ethical considerations that children fighting in Thai boxing does. But nevertheless, that still raises the question, okay, well, the two are not the same. The one that happened in Russia or Chechnya, wherever it happened, is much more ethically problematic. That doesn't then still raise the question about whether or not kids fighting in Thailand is also on its own accord ethically problematic is it the case that we're willing to say as a means of avoiding poverty that this kind of practice is okay perhaps you hold that opinion i, I again i do not know enough about the factors of the thai way of life and the thailand economy to suggest that there is an easy solution to this problem if in fact there is one um, all i know is i see a lot of outrage over this absurd dangerous thing that happened which is all fine there are still other ways in which we can tackle this issue that um, need to be addressed. And people have a sense about Thai boxing in America because they, they only really teach it to adults who can afford to show up three nights a week and pay 150 bucks or whatever it is at their gym to train. And, you know, they all bow and they feel like they're doing the Thai way of life. And a lot of the guys who even get a little bit better, they'll do all the warm-ups where they, you know, they go and they pray in all four corners and they, they do the dancing with the music and everything. and we have this sense that like, this is this noble cause of adults. It can be. It's also a way of life for incredibly impoverished Thai people. Um, and it's a practice we essentially tolerate. Where in the world is Dominic Cruz? The fighter, not the commentator. We haven't heard anything about the next Bantamweight title fight, and it's getting to the point where Bantamweight has too many contenders. Is he injured yet again? No. Um, if you follow him on Snapchat, he trains all the time. He is quite active. He is in the gym, and he's getting healed up. And remember, that foot condition he has, the plantar fasciitis, I don't think I've ever had it like he had it, but I had it. Bro, it is awful. <laughs> it is super awful. Um, it's really, really bad, and it's hard to shake, and it just feels like your foot is in this constant cramp, but it's more than just a cramp. Um, it's terrible, and I think he is just trying to buy some time to heal that because once – camp really kicks into high gear i don't know that he has some obvious solutions for it so um except just to tolerate the pain but i, I also feel like they're trying to figure out what to do at bantamweight do they give him tj dillashaw if they do where do they put him if they're not who's cody garbrandt going to fight if they're not going to give him cody garbrandt what's cody garbrandt going to do i agree that there should be some resolution about these questions but that's that's kind of where we are at the moment
This question didn't get wrecked, and I want to read it because it's a question I'm thinking about too. So here is what it says. Should Greg Hardy be given the opportunity to compete in MMA? Okay. This is what they say. Quote, I am of the opinion that people can do and in fact change because even though we are habitual animals, we can change our habits. There are others though that think that if your instincts are one way, they are very hard to change, especially after a certain age. Greg Hardy was arguably lucky he did not get tried in the case and therefore did not receive much of a punishment for what he allegedly did. In your opinion, do you think that he should be given the opportunity to compete in our sport, seeing as the NFL is questioning whether to include him in their organization? As we mentioned before, in the case of the NFL, Michael Vick being um, the notable test case and Ray Rice being the other kind of notable test case, if you pay some kind of legal punishment, some kind of public cost, if you show some degree of contrition and you can still play at a way in which you're valuable. Now, Michael Vick's performance has dropped off dramatically, but you get the idea. Still valuable to have on a roster. Um, there's there's room for you. Hardy has not done much of those. So we don't know if he can fight, and we don't know if, to my knowledge, he's ever showed any real contrition for what happened, allegedly. And then he didn't really pay, um, I mean, pre probation, any real legal um, consequences for it. So I think people, he's missing on at least three, but maybe two of the three. But there is an interesting question here. Like he is trying to get into MMA as a celebrity and as an athlete who already has the baggage before it starts. In other words, imagine if he were signed to the UFC and we all thought he was a good guy. Let's say we thought it was Tim Tebow. You all see Tim Tebow out there praying over someone having a medical emergency? Let's say that's the case. And then in his time in the UFC, all those things happened. Would it be different? I don't know the answer to that, but it's worth considering. And to me, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I have a really good answer here because all of the circumstances between Greg Hardy, or I should say, among Greg Hardy and uh, Abel Trujillo and Anthony Rumble Johnson and Cody East and whoever else you want to list on that, n- none of their circumstances are identical. But it's not clear to me exactly why in the cases of the fighters who are already on the UFC roster that we make these bold proclamations that if you do something like that to a woman, you should, or Travis Brown, you can add to the list, you should not be allowed to um, have a career. And on its face, I wouldn't really argue with that too much. That seems quite reasonable that a private organization would decide either ethically, we don't want that kind of person around, or be, as the NFL teams have decided, this is just too much of a headache for us. At the same time, however, I don't know why Greg Hardy's situation, other than this is the one area where his celebrity really hurts him, his celebrity on balance definitely helps him. There's just no doubt about it. Other than to say, though, his celebrity also hurts him in that it has magnified to a strong degree his domestic violence past. In other words, if Greg Hardy was out there turning wrenches, it'd be a fine vocation. I don't suspect it would be front page news everywhere on the sports page anyway. So that kind of hurts him a little bit. But then again, all the other benefits of celebrity helped him. I don't mean to suggest that he is uniquely disadvantaged in that regard. Um, I, I just don't understand what separates them. And maybe you could go through and you could pinpoint certain cases with Rumble Johnson sort of trying to turn over a new leaf and showing some kind of contrition. And again, I'm not calling for Rumble Johnson to be banned. I have comment, not commented, but I have 
covered his career. I have never called for it. I'm not calling for it now. Cody East seems to be a little bit of a different scenario, but okay, let's take Abel Trujillo and even Travis Brown. Um, I just, I, I'm going to go ahead and admit, I really don't know what the right answer is, but there is a hunch that I have that the circumstances surrounding Brown and Hardy and um, Trujillo and whoever else, I wonder in reality how different they are, and I wonder how much the treatment Greg Hardy might get. While maybe deserved, there is, at least in principle, there should be no difference between them. And of course, Greg Hardy's not in the UFC. I'm positing a, a theoretical scenario. Um, there's just something to think about. If you have a good a response, by all means, email me at luke.thomas at espionation.com. If there's a clear way to think about this, by all means, please do it. I don't have a good answer for it, but I just have a hunch that we haven't fully resolved whether or not if a guy like Hardy should never be allowed in the UFC, why we fully allow the participation of some of these other guys, some of whom have had, you know, clear run-ins with law enforcement um, or worse. All right, breakdown of the Nunes-Rousey fight, which is nearly finalized per Ariel Hawani. Realistically, how much of a chance does Nunes have? I know a lot of fans treat Rousey as if some magic spell was broken and now she'll lose to every striker she faces. But in reality, she was the most dominant force in women's MMA ever. Uh, in that run, yes. And Nunes is not Holly Holm. What is your prediction and why? Right, like, so how did Holly Holm win? Stick and move, right? Stick and move is how she won. That's not how Nunes wins. So there's this is an interesting fight. And this is more than an interesting fight if they ended up making it. This is a super interesting fight. Number one, to what degree was Ronda Rousey psychologically affected by that fight? To me, I thought she was traumatized by it, which isn't to say you can't overcome it, but nevertheless, it had a tremendous impact on her, as did all the other weights of celebrity um, and the insane media schedule she was trying to keep and everything else. All those things had a, a role to play. Number one, what's, what about that? Number two, let's say she has fully overcome whatever psychological scarring resulted as a consequence of that loss. What about the time off, right? What was one of the big lessons heading into that fight? Ronda Rousey fans, if you talk to them, fundamentally do not accept that that Ronda Rousey, even at her best, in other words, they'll say Ronda Rousey at her best could have easily handled Holly Holm. And maybe if they fought 10 times, she would win several of them. I, I don't deny it. But I don't know how you can watch that fight. And even with the granting of the concession, that this was a woman who was incredibly frustrated at that time in her life and overburdened. Was it a technical shortfall relative to Holly Holm? That doesn't mean Holly Holm is the best bantamweight. Clearly, we know that she's not. But styles make fights, yeah. I don't know how you can argue with that. And in the year of time off, how much training has she really done to shore up some of those deficiencies? That's an open question. Or it could be the case that even if there's psychological trauma, and even if she didn't, um, really sure of any of those deficiencies, it won't really matter because the Ronda we know can still lock up someone with a head and arm throw, get on top, and then absolutely smash you to pieces, right? Or, you know, break your arm or whatever, whatever analogy you want to use. So it could be that all of those things are true and it still doesn't matter. This fight is incredibly interesting because it's going to tell us the answers to a lot of those questions, I suspect. Or what we might find is that what happens if Ronda Rousey gets pieced up early but remember, she did actually get Ronda Rousey to, or uh, Holly Holm to the ground and almost had an armbar attempt one time. I think she got to the ground a couple of times, but certainly that one time. But Holly Holm was able to work out of it. And we go over that on the Monday Morning Analyst. Okay. Um, 
What if she pieces, what if Amanda Nunes pieces her up, gets even a little bit tired? Hold, uh, hold. Rousey hangs on, throws her, arm bars her, or whatever the case. That'd be pretty impressive. So we just don't know what the state of Ronda Rousey is. My hunch is that she'll win. But I think that if the lingering questions about where she is psychologically and developmentally are in any way, not anyway, are mostly true, it might be a bad night for her. We'll see. It's could not be bigger. Could not be bigger if they make that fight. Uh, okay. Conor McGregor's cardio issues are not due to cardiovascular inefficiency, but a, a lack of physiological preparation. By that, I mean, due to his own ego, he didn't give his body enough time to acclimate to a new and far higher weight fluctuation. The sad said principle speaks for itself. To move up two weight classes, he'd need at least a year to proper ac properly acclimate to 170. Now that he's again fluctuating his weight by going down to lightweight, he's screwing up his physiology. I suspect he will have the same cardio issues, maybe even worse given Eddie's grinding style. A good example is the Cyborg to 135 debate. To her and her camp, it's not even about can she make 135. It's about can she perform efficiency, efficiently at 135. Same with Connor. What do you think? I don't know. I don't know. Here's my read on the issues about his cardio. I don't think they're imaginary. I don't know how far-reaching they are. He did gas to an extent. Also, he got punished in the first Nate Diaz fight. He did gas in that fourth round, but then showed tremendous courage in coming back. Nate Diaz kind of also gassed. So is his gas tank terrible? No, I don't, I don't think it's terrible. Is it historically been shown to be as good as Eddie's? No, that's also true. Um, it has not been shown to be as good as Eddie's. Eddie's has been shown to be better. Will it matter in the end? You know, we'll see if he can even get out of the first. I really believe, man. I, I swear to God, all these guys are like the way you beat McGregor is is wrestling. Okay, you got to wrestle him up front. You know, he's got eight to nine minutes, and then he just folds, and then they go in and they strike with him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if I was if I was Eddie Alvarez, and you know, no one cares about my opinion. Uh, you know, I've I've interviewed um, um, his coach. Um, uh, Mark Henry a number of times, including about this fight. And I was like, aren't, shouldn't you just wrestle up front? Like, why didn't Mike Bisping wrestle Dan Hendo? I don't, I don't quite get that at all. I mean, he won, but it seemed to me an unnecessary way to go about getting punished. Okay. Why, why would you not just do what Demi, like, like there's something to be said for what Demi and Maya is doing, you know? And you could say, well, Demi and Maya is Demi and Maya. I mean, we're talking about one of the best black belts to ever compete in mixed martial arts. Okay. But if you really believe that your advantage over this guy is so substantive, in the case of Alvarez, talking the way he does about McGregor, why would you not grind on this guy? Even if you have to get separated, even if you get a takedown and he gets up, why would you, if you fundamentally believe all he has is eight minutes, why would you not put eight minutes of pressure on him and then fight him? I had Eddie Alvarez on my show and I asked him, how long can you really wrestle in an MMA fight? And he goes, three of five rounds. Now, you don't have to do the first three or the last three or then one and strike and then one and strike. What he basically means of, in a 25-minute fight, at most, you can wrestle 15 minutes. You just can't wrestle a full 25. You will gas. Okay, so you're telling me you think you have 15 minutes to wrestle if you need to, and he'll be out of there in eight minutes. That gives you seven minutes to spare. And yet, they, and I have, I'm telling you, I've got this feeling he's going to go in there and get strike. Uh, he's gonna, the, the bell's going to ring. He's going to march across. He's going to strike with him, and it might go well for him. But part of me feels like he's either going to get dropped, or at a minimum, I feel like he's going to get rocked. 
I think people still sleep on the fact that Conor McGregor has really, really good accuracy and movement. He'll look like he'll standing in front of you. And we saw before with the inside slip on Nate Diaz and the other Monday morning analyst. And he, my man from Ireland has some vicious, vicious power in his knuckle game. And I can't believe people acknowledge it. And maybe I'm, this is all for naught. Maybe Alvarez goes over there and uh, does exactly what I'm talking about, the old Demi and Maya approach. I'm going to jab just enough to gauge distance, and then I'm on you like uh, white on rice. All right, we'll see. But if he talks all this game <laughs> about how McGregor has only eight minutes and then he folds, and you're telling me you, have a, you could easily go 15 if you needed to, and you get out there and you strike with him, and you lose, you have no one to blame, man. You have no one to blame. You laid out the blueprint, and you didn't follow it. I'm, maybe I'm projecting here, but I feel like everyone is really good about acknowledging many of McGregor's strengths, but not all of them. And I feel like they're really good about acknowledging many of his weaknesses, although not all of them, and then making a game plan that doesn't incorporate really a strategy to address either. In other words, they just say, well, what am I good at? And he like, I'm good at striking. And he is good at striking. That doesn't necessarily mean that you should be doing that from the beginning of the bout in a contest where you tell the world this guy has only eight minutes to fight before he gasses. Because once he gasses, the power isn't the same and neither is the movement. Remember, McGregor's really good. Now, he doesn't have the same Frank Yeager style where he's going side to side to side to side. He kind of stays in there and does these quick boxing motions, right? That's what he does. He's really quick about good. He has a, a, a really great sense of boxing in there. Elbows on top of the ribs. Yeah. Short movements here and there, quick reactions, slips to the inside, slips to the outside. You know what I mean? If you can slow that guy down and where he can't move as quick and he can't react as quick, why would you not do that? Oh, man. That's that's my feeling about that. Uh, what do you think of Dominic Cruz's recent comments on facing McGregor? This is a great question. At 155, how do you think he would fare against at either featherweight or lightweight? I personally feel McGregor would have too much power for him, but then again, we all know about Cruz's skill set and have no idea how quick or powerful he would be at a higher weight, as he is pretty much bigger than all the bantamweights he's facing. Um, he's about the same frame size-ish. Not even, not even, he's too skinny for the frame size. Height-wise, he's relatively similar, I think, but I, I need to I need to question. Here, here's the question. I don't know if I like his chances at featherweight and certainly not lightweight. I think those guys are just too big for him. But there's something to be said about, um, look, you can't have it both ways. How many of you guys have gone out there and said, man, Dominic Cruz is the best analyst in the game. Dominic Cruz knows how to get in someone's head. Dominic Cruz knows how to talk the talk and walk the walk. And he's got this innovative style. And look at his footwork and look at his movement and look at the way in which he thinks about fights. And then tell me he can't assess a very clear way to beat Conor McGregor. I think if you had to fight Conor McGregor or if you had to strategize a way to think about defeating Conor McGregor, wouldn't you talk to Dominic Cruz? I would. That's not to say Dominic Cruz has the physicality necessarily to pull it off, but I would listen to his opinion. I think he does have some probably some good ideas about how to do it. Maybe an incorporated movement and maybe it would incorporate wrestling and how to time it and how to wear him down and do all the other things you needed to do. You know, I don't know that Cruz is the guy to pull it off, to be honest, but I hear everybody say, and I would agree, this guy is one of the best analysts in the game. Okay, Conor McGregor is another fighter who can be beaten. We've seen it. Uh, not merely in the UFC, but on the regional circuit as well. 
I do believe that if Dominic Cruz thinks he has some ideas about how he can be beaten, they'd be worth listening to. Now, whether you think Cruz could be the one to execute him, you know, I don't know. Good question, actually. Given the long break between UFC events coming up, what does this do for you journalists as a whole, i.e. more time off with friends and family, coast cruise control until then, study or hype UFC 205 more, delve into lesser-known fighters and promotions even more than normal, or just the same old, same old until the fans don't get to watch the fights? Yeah, it's going to be a lot of digging into things that ordinarily we wouldn't dig into, which has its benefits. It's going to be a lot of coming up with content to fill the time. Um but it's also going to be a little bit more time with family so and friends. So nothing wrong with that, I suppose. If you like your friends and your family. If you hate your family, this is a nightmare for you. Let's see. Could I make the argument that in the current USADA era... The current era of champions is the cream rising to the top as far as the best clean fighters. I don't know how you could possibly make that claim. Not saying the champions they beat were obviously on something, but guys like Eddie and Bisping, who are strong anti-PED advocates, are now breaking out with USADA stepping in. Uh, it's not quite an accurate summation of things, but okay. Uh, also, guys like Stipe, who even look like they're not on anything via the trusty eyeball test, have the extra gear in the cage as a natty fighter while the guys who lost that extra gear thanks to USADA are falling by the wayside. Am I crazy? I don't think you're crazy, but this is the only thing, and everyone's like, you love steroids. Uh, no, I do not love steroids. What I believe fundamentally is that we don't have drug testing right. I think we've gone too far, and I think there are ways in which to revise it back. I am not calling for the... Uh, dissolving of the relationship between UFC and USADA, but I don't believe the way in which it's currently done um, is fully effective. I don't believe the way in which it's currently done is done so with proper acknowledgement of um, athlete rights and protections and a number of other problems as well. So one of them is, and this is, this is a really simple, um, there's a new book out called The Edge by Roger Pilkey Jr. of the University of Colorado at Boulder. And um, he actually, in it, um, he's very pro-anti-doping. Uh, but he makes an argument, and it's one I've been making for a while, which is, if you're in favor of USADA, I'm not here to talk you out of it. Okay, USADA's great. Here's the problem that I, I don't ever get any answer to. How do you know this program is working? I do not want anecdotal stories. I do not want before and after photoshops. I don't want any of that. I want to know specifically how many were using before, how many are you not using now? To what extent are you deterring future use? You cannot, if you fundamentally believe in your heart of hearts, let us start with the premise that you and I love USADA. Let us start with the premise that you and I agree that anti-doping is an essential component to making sure that this sport continues in a uh, fair and maybe even a healthy way. Let's say we fundamentally agree to that. Should it not also be true that if that is true, that the program in which we are erecting to take care of those needs stands up to scrutiny? I don't know why that idea is controversial. If you believe that these programs 
have unequivocal value to the sport, and many of you do, why is asking questions and asking for evidence of their efficacy and effectiveness so out of bounds? I don't know if USADA is being effective. My hunch is that to some extent they are, but a hunch is worthless. Your hunch, my hunch, those don't mean anything. Show me the evidence. And as you'll see in the book, and I encourage you to read it by Roger Pilkey, there actually are ways to measure this. USADA just doesn't do it. And in fact, what Travis Tiger told Roger Pilkey in that book was that they would look into it. Well, look into it. I don't think it's a lot to ask that if we're going to put our athletes through this, where people are showing up at 6 a.m. and taking blood and urine and looking at their hogs or their genitalia generally, and they have to fill out where they're at at all times, maybe we all think that that's the important thing that has to get done. Should it not stand up to scrutiny? Should I not be able to ask questions to which there are answers? Shouldn't you? Wouldn't you want to? And I keep asking, where is the evidence, clear, unequivocal evidence that this program works? And it does not exist currently. I would like to see it produced. It is not impossible to produce. The powers that be have not elected to do it. Chapter one of the book, as a matter of fact, The Edge, Roger Pilkey, go to Amazon.com. He's a professor at the University of Colorado. I'm not making any of this up. This is all verifiable. I don't, I don't understand why that is so controversial. If I believe in something, I should be able to justify it with more than supposition. I should be able to justify it with more than, well, like, look at, look at their bodies. They're different now, which is like the least scientific answer imaginable. So if you want to say that this program is the best thing ever, okay, say it, but provide evidence for it or just say there is none currently and we'll work on it or whatever. Say whatever you want, but you can't say that we have evidence, clear evidence. We know how many we're using before and now we, we know how many are using now. We know how many were uh, dabbling in it before and we know how many are dabbling in it now. It's 2.15. Let's go to the Twitter machine. All right. Jose Aldo has just said if the UFC will not release him, he will lose fights on purpose. Can he legally do this? Jesus, can he legally do that? Um, I don't think you can throw a contest, if that's what he means. That would be a felony. Um Jose Aldo says lots of things. You know what I mean? Jose Aldo was like, I'll do this. USADA won't, won't challenge me. And then he shows up to UFC 200. I love Reebok. It's like, all right, man, you got to figure out what you want, you know? Uh, okay, what else we got here? Sorry, I was checking an email there. Um, Bisping has avenged two of his losses this year. Is there any value and merit in beating a person that has beat you? Yeah, I'm sure there is. Especially if you had a th if you have three fights. And we mentioned before, mixed martial arts, typically the one that wins the second one wins the third one. Not always, but typically. 
um, because th that that's when the both have a chance to either maintain or make adjustments. And you can see that, you know, again, this is not a hard and fast rule, but there's just a lot of evidence that the guy who can make those adjustments in the second one or the lady is the one who is probably overall more likely to win the third. Is UFC 205 too stacked? Example, Edgar Evans, Habib, all on the prelims. I wonder about this. I think in the end, um, if the fights end up being great, we won't say that. I just think partly what happened in UFC 200 was they just weren't all that awesome. Uh, will 206, 207 unnecessarily suffer because of this? I don't think so, but we'll see about 206. I mean, if you're worried about it, how do you not? I don't know. The GSP thing is so. Are you guys not confused by this, this GSP thing? You got Daniel Cormier saying, I don't think GSP is asking for a lot, and they don't have any headliner for 206. I mean, maybe they're working on it. I don't know. But I mean, clock's ticking, right? Is Bisping the fighter of the year? Ooh. He's in consideration. Um, is Bisping fighter of the year? He's in consideration. I have to think about it a little bit more. Any news on Nick Diaz? Yeah, he's smoking weed with Tommy Chong. Also, is Chocolatito still pound for pound the best boxing after uh, Quadras? Uh, yes. If Nevada suspended Connor, would we see NY honor it? Yes, you would. Could the amount of $2 billion made potentially change precedent? No. Can you list your top 10 lightweights of all time? Not off the top of my head. This person says, I'll reluctantly say Penn, Gomi, Hayato Sakurai, Eddie Alvarez, RDA, Pettis, Edgar, Gil Melendez, Nick Diaz, and Bendo. Without thinking about it, that sounds like a pretty good list. Who do you think has a better chance of winning their respective upcoming fights, Rowdy or McGregor? Ooh. Man, that's so tough to answer. Wow. I'll say McGregor only because I... There's a there's more of a known quantity, but we'll see. How cool is Musasi? Did y'all see him at the post fight press conference? On fire. Um, if you're Musasi, what do you do, man? You had a couple of good uh, fights that could have really propelled you, and and one you made a mistake against Uriah Hall, but you know you lost the Michael Bisping fight because they just made Bisping versus Anderson Silva, and it's just tough. It's just tough. How much merit does the argument NFL soccer players, etc., are far superior to MMA MMA fighters have? I don't think it has that much, depending on weight class. In some ways, it doesn't have a, a uh, any merit at all. But there's something to consider here. So when you think about Greg Hardy, for example, there have been other athletes who have crossed over from other sports and done quite well. But you know, take someone like Michael Westbrook. Now, Michael Westbrook's a little bit different. He was a star wide receiver for the Washington Redskins, beat the hell out of one of his teammates um, in a famous fashion. Michael Westbrook got washed by Travis Brown, who I don't think is the same kind of athlete that Michael Westbrook is. A uh, bit of a size difference there still. And, and Michael Westbrook is a little bit different because he was like a real martial arts student. Like he trained jujitsu and the gi and the whole bit. Like this wasn't a thing. He didn't. He took up MMA because he just fell out of love with football. It's not, it wasn't exactly the same kind of thing. I don't think he ever wanted to necessarily make a career out of it either. He just kind of tried it. And he was like okay at it at best. In other words, like great athleticism and fighting, there is an overlap if you're looking at a Venn diagram. But I still fundamentally believe there's something to fighting that is beyond the scope of what 
one's athleticism can tell you. There is a certain psychological component to it. There is a certain... Hmm. There is a certain... Uh, there's just a viciousness to the exercise that even the best athletes aren't always up for. Um, does the effectiveness of rubber guard decrease with increasing weight class? Yeah, probably. Uh, okay. Big Laser said... Coaches and fighters should shun Hardy. I agree, but where there's a buck to be made. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I don't necessarily find that idea offensive, but I don't know how realistic it is either. You know, it's prize fighting, right? And there are big prizes to be had, and there's big notoriety to be had. And, you know, if, if in fact, Greg Hardy turns out to do still be this horrible lout that we assume him to be, the gym can just say, Oh, we thought he was different. He told us one story and now he's gone. Like there, is there really a lingering cost at your gym for doing that? I mean, there might be one ethically, but in the real world, is there one, is there a financial cost to it? I don't, I don't know that there is, you know, um, what are the chances of GSP fighting Anderson Silva? Uh, from what I hear, not great. Uh, Gaul versus Northcutt, who you got? Hmm. I'm going to say Gaul, but I don't know. And I really like that fight because if you look on the outside, right, who has the edge striking? You would probably say Sage. Um, who has the edge competitively in terms of the amount of experience? You would say Sage. Um, and he's fought better guys, actually, right? He fought Cody Fister. Like, Mickey Gall has never fought anyone even as good as Cody Fister. Or even Enrique Marin, for that matter. Um so there's that. On the ground, I think you would argue uh, Gaul probably has the edge in that particular regard. So the question is, in the in-between spaces, what happens? I don't know. I don't know, right? That's the beauty of this. That's why I really like this fight. I really like this fight because it just feels like, to me, um, it's, a, it's, it's an appropriate one for either guy. Maybe Sage is at a bit of a disadvantage in terms of the size, given that it'll probably be happening at welterweight, but... Um, I think it's happening once we're I'm mistaken in some some way. Um, it just feels like a fun fight. It feels like an appropriate one. And it feels like one of those ones where we're going to learn a lot about the winner. Sometimes I don't feel like we learn a lot about the winner, but we will in this one. Um, so I really, really like it. And, and you know, both guys coming from the reality show and one guy being a bit of a good guy, one guy being, I think people like Mickey Gall, but he's a little bit of a, you know, he's a bit of more a brash, big mouth, uh, especially relative to Sage, who is, you know, Mr. Rogers. So, uh, that should be a fun one as well. Uh, would Cain Velasquez be the GOAT if he defeats Miocic? Probably. Probably. There would still be some things lacking to his resume, but probably. It would not be a crazy thought. Uh, okay. Oh, if Ronda takes the belt against Amanda, can she feel like a champ? Yeah, why wouldn't she? Or would the rematch against Holly need to happen? Still, that would need to happen. But, like, it would be one thing if Holly was still the champ or something or she was out and Amanda was the interim champ. But Holly has been – Holly lost – like, the division didn't merely move on from Ronda. The division moved on from Holly. Holly lost to Misha. Misha lost to Amanda. And then Holly lost again to Shevchenko. Uh the division has moved significantly beyond a number of players. 
uh, Ronda Rousey, not least uh, among them. A Klitschko versus Joshua deal is in the works. I heard about this. Is it too soon for Joshua to face a guy like Klitschko? I don't know. I didn't think Klitschko looked all that awesome against uh, um, Crazy Pants um, in his last fight. Uh, Jesus, my memory is killing me. Um, so it says, also Ward versus Kovalev and UFC 205 are in the same month. Most high-level MMA boxing month ever. Ooh, up there. That's up there. I have to think about it. Um, Fury, uh, Tyson Fury. Um, I didn't think Klitschko looked all that awesome against him. Now, Joshua has a bit of a more wide open style. Not crazy, of course. He's a disciplined boxer, but I mean, relative to Fury, who was doing a lot of sticking behind the jab and tying up, although Klitschko was doing a lot of tying up as well. We'll see how Klitschko can counter him, but Klitschko's getting older, man. He's not good infinitely, and I don't know how things would go in a rematch with Fury, if even if Fury didn't have all these issues, but um, I wonder about Klitschko, about whether he's really sort of coming down on the other end of his career at this point. Mm -mm. Interesting question. Why do analysts love Michael McDonald so much? Ranking analysts. His only win of any remaining relevance was against Brad Pickett, and he's been horribly, horrifically inactive and looked bad even in winning. Yet he was only pushed out of the top five by being creamed by Lineker, who still sits at number nine. Why is he counted amongst the elites? Well, he's super young. You have to remember he had this quick rise to, not fame exactly, but prominence, especially on the back of that knockout over Miguel Torres. He has big power. He's good everywhere. Um, he has had some injuries that have kept him out and some other reasons as well, but I just feel like that surge early helped him a lot. You know, beating Miguel Torres now wouldn't necessarily mean a whole lot, but back then it did, and uh, and other fighters as well. And uh, even when he loses, you know, I think you're being a little bit dismissive. He has shown some abilities. I mean, he was cracking Lineker. It's just that Lineker has big power, you know. Um, even John Dotson, who was cracking him with big power and on his feet moving, didn't get the win. So it's a, it's a tough spot for him. Someone goes, who is Greg Hardy? Someone says, uh, Conor McGregor, 150K fine. You have an issue with the dollar amount of this fine, citing it should be a 1K. Well, 1K is no deterrent. Come on, man. Conor can't be throwing S like that with all those people around, including kids. So that said, what would have been appropriate in your mind? I don't know, $30,000 or something? Because if you think $150,000 is going to tell McGregor to do one thing or another, well, I have some oceanfront property for you in Arizona. Um, someone says, I'm European. I don't get this commission stuff. Can you explain what commissions, power, and or validity? So think of it. I don't know how it works in various parts of Europe, but here in the United States, if you want to go and get a license to drive, you have to go to the Department of Motor Vehicles. It is a government agency filled with government employees. There's paperwork to fill out. There are various ways in which you have to prove your ability to meet a certain threshold of performance or to be granted a license. So you have to pass a knowledge test. It also means getting behind the wheel of a car. There's someone in the car that sits with you and you have to drive around to show, hey, I've passed enough of the criteria that you've set out, um, including that my car is in decent enough shape where I can be granted a license because it's a privilege, not a right to go compete. Competing in MMA is, not a, is a privilege, it's not a right. It's not like the voting right or some kind of other right of speech. Uh, it's a privilege. 
And so you have to get a license to do it and a government agency regulates it. That is what the commissions do. They were set up in the, the I would say, um, in the first quarter of the 20th century in large parts, both to clean up the sport and to regulate it in some capacity. In other words, they were requiring promoters to get licenses, that purses to be declared, that um, this was a way to help clean up some of the gambling that was going on around it. And that there that some kind of agency was looking around and saying, okay, um, these two guys are relatively equal in skill. We approve this match. It was just to create some kind of oversight to this activity, not to put it away, but to bring it to light and then regulate it. Um, so imagine if people were driving around with no licenses before. This was a way to make sure that there was some kind of way to do that. And you need licenses for all kinds of things in this country. You need a license to be a contractor. Um, you need a license to cut hair, right? Um, so it's just another one of those government agencies that calls for that. Can the ruling be appealed? You can sue them. What kind of rules and guidelines are they using to govern their own bylaws? Is the power of a commission only in the state or is it over the UFC? The UFC also has to get a commission license to operate as a promoter. Uh, okay, it's 2.31, we have to go. I believe, uh, at least in terms of technology, this was a success relative to anyway the past couple of weeks. If you watched, thank you so much for watching. I really appreciate it. I am so sorry about the last couple of weeks, but if you stuck with me, well, you are deserving of sainthood. I can't grant you that, but someone should. Uh, email me with any questions or comments at luke.thomas at sbnation.com, 4 p.m. Luke Thomas Show, Sirius XM 93. I appreciate you guys watching, and until next time, stay frosty.